If Martin Luther King stood up at that podium in Washington on August 28th, 1963, and he said, I have a dream. And then he went on to say, I saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. The second was like a bear. The third was like a leopard with four wings on its back and four heads. And then a fourth beast came out of the sea, terrifying in appearance. It had iron teeth and devoured everything in its way, and it had ten horns. And in the middle of the horn, a small one that was terrifying and had many eyes like humans and spoke boastful things. Don't think his speech would have had the same impact. <laughs> I've actually just co-opted one of many visions in the book of Daniel, and it doesn't take long in the book of Daniel before you turn a page and things get otherworldly and weird. And this sort of imagery is very common in apocalyptic literature like Daniel. That's what it's called, apocalyptic literature. Each mystifying dream or vision is given to unearth a deeper perspective about history. So the veil is pulled back and we get to see behind the curtain. And although what Daniel sees appears uncommon at first, it's loaded with truth about what we see every single day. Essentially, if we lean into the book of Daniel, we begin to see life and history in a new light. And God opens up new ways of seeing reality. We can perceive uh, things beyond the charade and begin to see reality for what it really is. But there's so much more to the book of Daniel than just the bizarre and unusual dreams and visions. Daniel intends to answer two questions. How do we live in a foreign land? And how do we fit in without being swallowed up? The book answers these questions, yes, through visions and dreams, but more profoundly through the faithfulness and resilience of Daniel's friends and his, his own faith in God. One scholar calls Daniel a realistic survival manual for the saints. I like that. A realistic survival manual for the saints. We need that, don't we? And that's why we're going to spend the next 12 weeks in this book as a community so we can discern how we can faithfully live here and now in Vancouver amidst the pressures that push against our own faith. This morning, we're going to begin at the beginning of chapter, the introductory chapter of Daniel, which will help situate us for the rest of the book. In fact, the main idea of this chapter is the same idea that the book will come back to again and again, highlighting in different ways. And so we really need to get this idea solidified in our hearts and minds. And here it is. Despite all appearances, God is in control. And he gives us what we need to be faithful in exile. So if you do own a Bible, open it up, crack it open to around the middle and find the book of Daniel. Uh, we'll be in chapter one today. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our gray Bibles home with you. We mean it. We'd love for you to have that. Everything's also on the screen behind me, so you can track that way too. Daniel chapter one, beginning in verse one, we read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Sinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, 
already I'm cut from this group, uh, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So as we step into the book of Daniel, we're actually stepping back way into history, and so we need a brief primer in history. As you may know, Babylon was famous for having one of the seven wonders of the world. You know this, yes? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. What you might not know is they are constructed by none other than the Nebuchadnezzar mentioned in our passage here. King Nebi or Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, however you want to say it, he reigned from 605 BC to 562 BC. So give or take 2,500 years ago. The ruins of Babylon, his capital city, are in modern-day Iraq, about 94 miles northwest of Baghdad, just to get you situated. Uh, and under the reign of Nebi or Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon became one of the most influential cities in the ancient world. Ancient historians who actually visited Babylon, saw it firsthand, wrote about how it had a surpassing splendor compared to any city in the then-known world. So when it comes to like top cities to live in the world, Babylon might have actually had Vancouver beat. Now, on the surface, Babylon was influential. It was stunning. It was innovative. But we're told it was located in the land of Sinar. And this is a subversive little comment. I want you to see that. It's a subtle reminder that Babylon is Babel all over again. If you're not familiar with the Tower of Babel, which we read about in Genesis 11, it was actually located in the land of Sinar. And humanity rallied and unified around this project, building this tower. But it was an unhealthy unity aimed at exalting humanity themselves, looking at their lives rather than worshiping the God of the universe. And so from the beginning of the book of Daniel, we're meant to draw a line from Babylon to Babel which means Babylon wasn't as great as it appeared on the surface. Babylon was a polytheistic, violent, tyrannical, oppressive, indulgent culture that ultimately worshipped human power above all else. Same problem in Babel. As the book of Daniel begins, Nebuchadnezzar is off of a very powerful victory in Egypt in around 609 BC, just decimated Egypt in a battle. Next, he turns his attention to Jerusalem, and he besieged the city in three phases from 605 to 587 BC. Now think about this. The city that God's people called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole world. This city was blockaded, assaulted, defeated, pillaged, and starved, and in due time, the walls fell and the city was lost. To say that this was a traumatic event in Old Testament history is an understatement. Once Jerusalem was besieged, Nebuchadnezzar implemented his Babylonianization program. I got that one out. Babylonianization program. Two steps. Step one, ransack the temple and transport some of its treasures into the treasuries of his gods in Babylon. Essentially, this was a way of saying the gods of Babylon have defeated the little God of Israel. And not only will your people now be subjected to me, so too will your God be subjected to me. It was in a total affront to everything Israelites believed. The second step 
Nebuchadnezzar subjected the best and brightest people from Israel into a three-year process of assimilation into Babylonian culture. They were forced to learn how to live now as Babylonians rather than Israelites. And suddenly, these Israelites, the people of the one true living God, they now have a new identity, an identity as exiles. They are exiles in a foreign land that is aggressively working to change who they are. So I understand after this brief history lesson, as we consider Babylon and the experience of being an exile in Babylon, it can feel like a long time ago and, and pretty foreign to us. But it doesn't matter if you live in ancient Babylon or Caesar's Rome or Vancouver today. No matter what century or country you live in, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you become a citizen of heaven and an exile on earth. This is the language scripture uses to describe you. If you follow Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven and an exile on earth. This world, this country, this city, it is not your home. Jesus cultivates in us, actually, a bit of homesickness for his presence, for his kingdom, for his ways. And we get tastes of it here and now. We see his goodness here and now, but we're exiles and we're longing for that home. Because every city on this earth tends to drift towards Babel. Every city on this earth tends to drift towards Babel. When left to our own devices, humanity will celebrate human power and greatness rather than worship God. And the impulse of every single culture is to assimilate you into its ways of life, its conception of the world, its ways of living. So the question for us as exiles is this, how shall we live in a foreign land? And how do we fit in without being swallowed up? And this is the question at the heart of the book. So let's read on in verses six through seven. Nebuchadnezzar, he's relocated some of Israel's best and brightest to Babylon. And now we read, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we're told they were young, maybe teenagers, when they witnessed firsthand the tyranny and violence of Nebuchadnezzar. They were traumatized. It is very plausible that they saw friends and relatives murdered. They had lost everything, and they're, forced, they're forcibly relocated into a foreign land surrounded by pagan gods and subjected now to new customs. So, of course, they're asking, how do we fit in here without being swallowed whole? It turns out, as we learn later in the book, that Daniel had access to the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And one specific prop prophecy from Jeremiah clearly shaped Daniel's understanding of how to live in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Daniel's listening. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your wealth. 
Jeremiah provides this lofty vision, and Daniel and his friends show us how it actually works out on the ground. They decide to seek the welfare of Babylon. Daniel and his friends, they accept entry into this three-year program of assimilation. They submit themselves to the very best education of the ancient world. They learn all about the history of Babylon and its culture. They learn the languages. They learn about astrology. They learn about dream interpretation. They even accept new names. Imagine if your name is Christopher, which I might imagine is difficult for everyone here unless you're named Christopher. But Chris, you might not know this. Your name means carrier of Christ. Now imagine if a foreign power took you, removed you, put you in a new land and said, your name is now Krishna, named after the Hindu God. That's what is happening here. These four youths all have names that somehow express who God is, the God of Israel. And all of them are given new names in relation to a Babylonian God. But perhaps the most shocking result of their three years of assimilation will be a job in the Babylonian government. The very government that overturned their homeland and demolished their culture and people is now who they will be working for. Daniel and his friends show us in profound ways, really, how far we can go to seek the welfare of our city. There will be aspects of culture, there will always be aspects of culture that we can readily accept and even endorse, that align with our values and who God calls us to be. There will be aspects of our culture and our city that we deeply disagree with, and yet we can still participate within and engage thoughtfully. But there will be a point, and there will always be a point, where a line has to be drawn. Look at verse 8. What do we read in verse 8? But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. If you don't draw the line somewhere, you end up drawing the line nowhere. Such a revolutionary thought, right? <laughs> Daniel could not and would not be totally assimilated into Babylon because it would defile him. But why take a stand against the king's food? Like, why not resist the name change or the Babylonian haircut? You know, why settle for vegetables when you can have the finest food available? There's a lot of conjecture about this. You can read all about it, but really, we don't know. What we do know is that Daniel and his friends will draw the line again. They'll refuse to worship a statue of the king in a couple chapters. And then later in life, Daniel will commit civil disobedience against a law prohibiting from praying to God. So really, the point isn't about food. The point is that Daniel made a decision not to defile himself by aligning too closely with Nebuchadnezzar. He could seek the welfare of Babylon, but not accept total assimilation into Babylon, because ultimately his loyalty is to God. And if Babylon wants him to compromise that, he has to draw a line. But could a decision really matter this much? Could a decision truly matter this much? If we look throughout history, we see the answer is yes, because how we live out our faith is just as important as what we believe. The first Christians, 
They were told to worship Caesar and that their lives could be spared if they merely took a pinch of incense and put it into the fire that burned in the presence and image of Caesar. But countless Christians died rather than defile themselves in this way. They wouldn't burn the incense. Eric Liddell, who is known as the Flying Scotsman, once said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I have no idea what he's talking about. And yet, as a competitor in the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, the man who felt God's pleasure when he runs refused to participate in the 100-meter race, his best event, because it landed on the Sabbath. He wouldn't defile himself by breaking the Sabbath. Rosa Parks is now known as the First Lady of Civil Rights. Parks refused to obey her bus driver when he ordered her to give up the seat in the colored section so that a white person could take her seat. And her small act of defiance catalyzed a movement. She later said she couldn't have lived with herself if she got up and gave up the seat, that she would have been defiling herself in some way. So she stood her ground. She kept her seat. She committed this act of civil disobedience. Refusing to eat, refusing to burn incense, refusing to break the Sabbath, engaging in civil disobedience. These are just some of the ways people have decided not to defile themselves throughout the centuries. So, of course, we need to ask, what could this look like for us today? Are you ready to get uncomfortable? Doesn't look like it. Today, it might mean that you refuse to engage in unethical business practices or misuses of power in your job, even if it might cost you your job. As a small business, it might mean you don't withhold earnings on your taxes, even if it means you end up with less in your account. It might mean saying no to the bachelorette or bachelor party because you'll have to go to a strip club and saying no, even if your friends totally don't understand the reason. It might mean saying no to forms of entertainment that are excessively violent or sexual in a dehumanizing way or declining to get drunk or high, even if you'll appear prudish. As a doctor, it might mean you decline to perform an abortion or euthanasia, even if it risks you your license. As a nonprofit, it might mean you can't check the new attestation clause of the suburb job grants, even if it means a loss of funding. And sometimes you won't know where you need to draw the line until you're already there. And it's worth saying this, and I hope you'll hear me on this. Christians have not always agreed on the issues and where we need to draw a line. If we look to the history of the early church, some of those early Christians actually chose to burn incense to Caesar. Others have competed in sports on the Sabbath. Many engaged in the civil rights movement without committing uh, civil disobedience. Sometimes there is room for healthy disagreement to not totally agree that the line needs to be drawn there, but other times the scriptures are perfectly clear about an issue and a line has to be drawn. So the question is, How do we become the type of people who know when to say no and how to say no and will say no when the time comes? How do we become that type of people? Well, let's look at Daniel's practices. Throughout the book, we see that even in exile, Daniel was anchored in the scriptures. Daniel maintained close and intimate 
friendships that were rooted in prayer. As we'll see next week, this, this group of four were crucial for Daniel in discerning how to live in Babylon and how to serve in the king's court. We see through the book that Daniel cultivated this rich and humble relationship with God through scripture, prayer, and confession, and integrating his faith, not just in the private parts of his life, but all of life. And this is why we stress community groups the way we do. And this has been on my heart for our community. You cannot thrive as a Christian in modern-day Vancouver on your own. We were not made to live that way, first of all. And the pressure of the city to conform to its ways, its values, its system is too great for you to just do this on in isolation. That's why we value interdependence as a church. We need one another. We need to be rooted in the scriptures, in the context of a community where true spiritual friendships are cultivated so that when we're facing issues in our lives and we're having trouble knowing what we should think or how we should draw a line, there's people there. There's people there to help teach us or to comfort us or to challenge us, to engage with us, but most of all, to pray with us, to help us discern what is the Spirit saying? How do we follow Jesus in this? Does a line need to be drawn or can I compromise? Scripture, community, prayer, cultivating a deep dependency upon God. That's how we can begin to say no when it matters most. You can't do it alone. You can't. But as we look at Daniel's example, we'll see that how we resist is just as important as the act of drawing the line. So Daniel decides, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food. So his first measure is to talk to his supervisor and say, I would like to do this. And his supervisor is a little cautious. He says in verse 10, I fear my lord, the king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. You're going to get my head cut off, Daniel. What does Daniel do? Does he argue? Does he lose his temper? Does he say, too bad for you. I'm going on a hunger strike. You're not the boss of me. I do what I want. Does Daniel appeal to some charter of religious freedoms? No. Daniel is as respectful as he is creative. Look at his reply in verse 12. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servant according to what you see. Daniel is thoughtful. He's considerate. He's respectful. He gently tries to find a way to hold his ground while inviting dialogue and conversation, while addressing the concerns and worries of the person this could also impact. This is such a great model for us. It is almost pointless to take a stand as an expression of our faith in Jesus if we aren't going to at least try to be like him in the process. Seriously, like what good does it do to take a stand if we're going to misrepresent who Jesus is in the way that we do it? If you're angry or you're opinionated or you're arrogant or you're prideful or you're contemptuous, if you're condescending or stubborn or not open to reason and dialogue, what are you achieving? Because part of the reason we need to draw a line from time to time is not just for the sake of doing what is right for ourselves. 
It's also for the sake of those around us. People are watching. People are watching your life and they're taking note. They want to, they're wondering, does faith really make a difference? Does the God you claim to follow really change lives? Is he really the God of the universe? People are watching. And now I suspect many of us are thinking about the times where we knew we should say no and didn't, or when we took a stand, but we did it in the totally wrong way. We're all thinking of times, right, where we failed or compromised or wished we acted differently altogether. Anybody, or am I alone in this? Have you ever heard, speak now or forever hold your peace? Or till death do us part, or earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Any of these phrases ring a bell? Then it means you've uh, bumped into Thomas Cranmer and his lasting impact. He wrote all of these phrases. Cranmer, you may not know, was a significant Protestant theologian at uh, the Reformation of the 16th century. And yet when the political environment changed around him, he was imprisoned for his part in the Reformation. And the powers that be told him to recant of all his work. And they put a lot of pressure on him saying, say it was all wrong. And after a year of being in prison, Cranmer wrote a recantation. These beautiful truths that he helped get into the hands of ordinary people, he said it was all wrong. And before his execution, he was expected to read his recantation. But instead, he recanted his recantation. It's just so British. I love it. <laughs> and when he was brought to the stake to be burned alive, he put his writing hand in the fire first. And his last words were, this unworthy hand, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Yes, Cranmer gave into a moment of weakness or even cowardice. He failed to resist at a point where it mattered. And yet, he also knew that God's mercies are new every single morning. And that means there's often opportunities to give it another shot. I have botched it more times than I can count. I can think of specific times where how I lived, the actions I took, betrayed my faith in a significant way. And if you want to know the details of that, I'd be happy to grab a coffee with you and talk about it. But as a result, two times in my life, I've had people I love or people I respect that I care about sit me down and say, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. They're not followers of Jesus, but they were observing my life. They saw what I did. They said to me, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. And it wrecked me because I knew they were right. When we fall short of our convictions or fail to take a stand when it matters, I want you to hear this. There's always mercy. God's mercies are new every morning. We can repent. We can apologize. We can ask for forgiveness. We can clarify what we should have done and we can try again. We might not be able to undo what we've done, but we never have to be defined by our past mistakes or future mistakes because Jesus paid for these things on the cross. He has forgiven you and God's mercies are new every morning. And often the Lord uses our failures, our moments of weakness to show us more about his grace and his love and his mercy towards us. And so our failures become the training ground for us to depend on him in an even richer way. But 
How do we become people who will be able to say no when it matters? That's what this passage is about. And so I want to consider three, uh, a phrase that appears three times. It's an important little phrase in the chapter. Look at verses one and two. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And then look at verse 8 and 9. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor, compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Finally, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God gave, God gave, God gave. Despite all appearances, God is still in control. God is in control of history. God is in control over tyrants. God is in control over presidents. God is in control over prime ministers. God is in control in our circumstances and lives despite all appearances. And God is in control even over our giftedness. And as, as challenging as it would be to accept this mystery, because we can think of a lot of questions, can't we? God brought Daniel and his friends to Babylon. Yes, Israel was facing the consequence for their perpetual unfaithfulness to God. This was a part of God bringing a corrective judgment on his people. But even though Israel was unfaithful, God could not be unfaithful to them. He could not and would not because it would be a betrayal of who he is. Despite all appearances, God is in control and he gives us what we need to be faithful in exile. As Daniel took a stand for his faith, God gave him favor. We see this in verse 15. Daniel goes vegan and he ends up... Uh, a better appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the people who are eating the meat. We see in verse 20 that Nebuchadnezzar even found Daniel and his friends to be 10 times more insightful and brilliant than his best enchanters and sorcerers and advisors. Yes, Daniel was already smart. That was one of the reasons he was selected. Yes, he probably applied himself in school, but the scriptures emphasize that God also gave him an endowment of wisdom and understanding that is beyond just natural ability. But let's not put our hope in the outcome here. Yes, Daniel found favor in amazing ways, but he was still in exile. And it wasn't a cakewalk. And in other contexts, people have been martyred and killed for less. Instead, we need to focus on the last verse, the very last verse. We read in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, when we first read through this passage, that just seems like a footnote, doesn't it? But it's a prophetic jab. Cyrus was the king of Persia who overthrew the Babylonian empire about 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar had established it. So the empire that had destroyed Israel in the first verse of this chapter is itself destroyed and replaced by the last verse in this chapter. And through it all, Daniel survived. 
Kingdoms come and go. Nations rise and fall. Where's Babylon now? And one day Vancouver is only going to be a memory. But the kingdom of God will remain. And the people of God will out-endure all earthly kingdoms. How can we have this hope? How can we truly believe that? God gives. Don't overlook that point. God gives. And what God has finally given us is not some earthly king or utopia city. Instead, God has given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God has given us our true home, an everlasting home that will outlast every city on the planet Earth. And he's given us this because Jesus left his true home in heaven. And he came to earth and he lived as an exile with perfect faithfulness while he was here. And through his faithfulness, we can rest assured that God will carry us through our own exile and he will bring us home. God has given his, his son and he will bring us home. Daniel is a testimony to the God who carries us through exile. That's what this is all about. And as we live in light of this hope, we live as citizens of heaven and as exiles on earth. And in the meantime, God wants us to seek the welfare of our city. He wants us to pray for our city. He wants us to engage thoughtfully every part of our lives in the city. He wants us to be engaged and present, not disengaged and hidden. And you need to know this. As you engage our city, there's going to be a lot of things you can affirm. There's going to be a lot of things you can encourage. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to partner with initiatives that align with the kingdom of God. But there's going to be times where you have to draw a line. And right now, you might be facing that. And if you want to meet and talk about that, we're here for you. And you might know exactly what it is, and sometimes you won't know what it is until you're there. But in these difficult moments, when our decisions matter, we can take great comfort. Despite all appearances, God is in control, and he gives us what we need to be faithful in exile. And he will bring us home.